Great to be here with you all. My name is uh, Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here as well, and it's a great privilege to open God's Word uh, together as we go through this uh, book of Daniel. So I'm just going to pray once more, and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you for being so good and kind and generous to be a speaking God, and we pray that you would help us today <clears throat> to see this passage uh, and to see you for, for who you are. Lord, thank you for this time. We pray your blessing upon it. Pray that your spirit will work among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So most objects have an intended use, something that the designer uh, had in mind when he or she created or built that object. A hammer is designed to, to pound nails into wood. Uh, a saw is designed to, to cut something into pieces. Uh, but of course, this doesn't mean that uh, the intended use is always the only use. We often use objects for something other than their original intended use uh, to get a job done, and sometimes that, that works well, sometimes it doesn't. I've seen this in my own house. One question that comes up in every house is, what do you do uh, when you have to reach something that's really high up? Now, I'm fairly tall, and so this doesn't happen too often to me, but but there are times when I have to, to reach higher than, than I can, and, and so if something is too high up, that, that's not a problem because we have a little step stool, and then we also have a ladder if I really need to reach high, and so that's what I'll use. But I'm married to somebody who is uh, different than me, and Catherine's mind, I think, works uh, differently in many ways. Uh, so when she needs to reach something, she doesn't need a ladder because everything looks like a ladder to her. She'll stand on anything, and it's terrifying uh, to me. No matter how uh, unsecure and wobbly it is, I've seen her stand uh, on, on folding chairs, uh, on stools, uh, on couches. Uh, in one case, uh, even commandeering this, this little swinging uh, ottoman that we have that kind of like quickly shifts back and forth. It's a little bit like trying to surf, I think would be an accurate description. And she told me, we were talking about this, she told me the other day, she's like, no, it's good, you just need to balance yourself, you'll be fine. So sometimes it is fine to use something in a non-intended way. In fact, I was reading an article this week about famous products that started as something that had a completely different use. Frisbees that we love to throw around started as pie containers. The Listerine that we use to clean out our mouths, that was marketed originally as a floor cleaner. Bubble wrap, believe it or not, and I actually love this idea, started as a wallpaper. But they all found one might argue, better and higher uses than their original intentions. And so, yes, there are times when the unintended use uh, is just fine or even better, but this is not always the case. So we're continuing today in our series in Daniel, and, and last week we heard in Daniel 4 about how Babylon's king at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, was humbled by God, and then he went on to express his faith in that same God. And we ended last week, I think, on this great note of hope. It's one of those moments in the Bible where you think, okay, maybe there's going to be a turning point. Maybe now the kings of Babylon will, will follow and honor God. But as we see today in Daniel 5, this is not the case as a new king has come along who does not remember Daniel and does not acknowledge the goodness and power of Daniel's God. And this king uh, learned some really painful lessons about who he is and who God is. And, and these are truths that, that, that I think we need uh, as well. I think we'll see as we focus in on this passage who we are, what we are meant and intended for, who God is, and why understanding uh, these things is, is really such good news 
if we have ears to hear it. So this is a pretty long passage uh, that Jolene uh, just read for us, uh, and I'm going to uh, go through it in a few parts. We're going to start in verse 12. I'm going to read each part and then uh, talk about it. So verse 1 starts with this. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. <clears throat> then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live, for, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, who the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. And so as we begin to look at this uh, story, we need to consider the context of what is going on in Babylon. First, we see we do have this new king, Belshazzar, who is referred to in this passage as the son of Nebuchadnezzar. But technically, it seems that Nebuchadnezzar was uh, not really his father, but his predecessor, possibly his uh, maternal grandfather. And it's not that, that, that the Bible is wrong here or this is something that should, should alarm us. It's just that people back then often referred to their predecessors as fathers. In fact, it seems that Belshazzar co-led the kingdom with his immediate father, Nabonidus. Now, while Nebuchadnezzar, the predecessor, oversaw Babylon when it was a great empire, this is not the case for this king, Belshazzar. At the time of Daniel 5, the, the Babylonian empire uh, was very much limping along to its end. They had suffered really significant military defeats, and so things are, are looking bleak uh, for the kingdom in many ways. Now, it's possible uh, that, that, that the king, Belshazzar, felt, felt confident that, that Babylon would be able to withstand uh, attack, and so what happens in this passage is truly some sort of celebratory feast of confidence. And it's also possible that the feast that we read about here was also just kind of a last hurrah because everyone knew that the end was probably near. Or it could have been some sort of mixture. If you've ever read about or watched movies uh, about the last days of like Nazi Germany in World War II, 
What's portrayed in that bunker in Berlin is a mixture of irrational confidence along with moments of really kind of hopeless reality as Hitler's empire crumbled around him. And I think it could have been a very similar mood in Babylon. But no matter what the exact motivation, we see here that Belshazzar is determined to put on a feast, a really great and big feast. We see that there are a thousand of his lords there, high-ranking people in attendance, and, and the king kicks things off by drinking the wine. And while it might feel foolish uh, to start in on a big feast as the empire is about to collapse, what is really foolish is what happens next. When the king calls for the golden vessels from the temple in Jerusalem, these objects that Nebuchadnezzar took along with Daniel and his friends from Jerusalem when he conquered that city many years before, those objects were meant for a very specific purpose, for the worship of the true God. And it just kind of goes downhill from there. The vessels come out. Everyone's going to drink from them. The king, his lords, his wives, his concubines who were other women that were of lower official status than his wives. Everyone is going to use these precious objects in a very wrong and improper way. Not only drinking out of them, but doing all this while praising not the true God of Israel, but the false gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. It's, it's really just a very bad scene. And intentional or not, it, it, it's a complete mockery of what God had intended. God had intended these vessels to be used in true worship by God's people to honor the one true God, but instead these vessels are being used to mock the true God. And not only these vessels, but tragically, these people who had been created by God to bear his image, to reflect his goodness and glory, and are instead worshiping a bunch of worthless idols. Everything about this feast is, is disordered and chaotic and in many ways tragic. As we hear about this feast, we just kind of get the sense that this is one of those times in the Bible when enough is enough. Now, I'm sure this wasn't the first time uh, that this king dishonored God, but we see often in the Bible that there are ways of, of kind of arrogantly dishonoring God that can lead to immediate consequences, where it becomes time for God to simply step in and say, that's it, no more. You can go through the Bible and, and see this happen again and again when our patient and long-suffering God finally says that's enough. We see how God dealt with the Pharaoh in Egypt when he refused to let God's people go, and he brought these ever-worsening plagues upon the, the Pharaoh and his nation. Max mentioned last week the story of Herod Agrippa in the New Testament. I think that's a great example who showed incredible arrogance in giving a speech, even accepting the worship of the people who heard him. And he very quickly died as a direct result. And what's interesting is that here we are in the last days of Babylon. And we remember how things started for Babylon. Way back in chapter 11, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, when the people came together in their pride and tried to build a tower to the heavens to try to make a name for themselves. And what happened? God stepped in and said, that's enough. And if you ever read that story, you know how he did this, by, by confusing their languages so that they no longer knew what was going on. It was a scene of confusion and chaos. So now here we are, again, the last days of Babylon, and what does God do? He does something very similar, doesn't he? He brings a message with language that confuses the people gathered together so that they don't know what's going on. 
We hear that the fingers of a human hand appear and write on the plaster of the wall, and the king sees this, and, and the feast is, is over at that point, understandably. And the author of Daniel is so descriptive of what happens to the king just, just in his body. His, his color changes, his limbs give way, his knees knock together. And in his panic, he calls out for the people that he thinks can help him, the so-called wise men of Babylon. <laughs> These same people that have come up short again and again in the book of Daniel. But he makes them this, this big offer. He says, I'll clothe you in purple. I'll, I'll ascend you to royal status. If you can just read the message and interpret the message. But just like they've been throughout the book, they're no help to the king, and the king's alarm and his panic simply grow worse. You know, there's a lot of themes we can, we can draw, I think, out of these initial verses, but one that really stands out is just to look what has become of King Belshazzar and his so-called wise men. You know, where is the fruit of their pride? Where is the fruit of their worshiping of idols? Now they are without speech. They're without knowledge. They're without a clue of what is going on, just like the very idols that they worshiped. And they've descended into frantic chaos, just like their predecessors at the Tower of Babel, and just like so many in the Bible that put their hope in themselves or in their idols to save them. But there's another voice on the scene in Daniel 5, and that's the voice of the queen. Now, the queen was, was not at the feast. It says that she, that she comes into the banqueting hall when she hears about all the chaos uh, that's unfolding in there. Now, most commentators uh, say that the, the queen was probably more akin to the role of like the queen mother, not, not someone who was actually married uh, to the current king. And this queen mother is able to speak into the current moment because she is informed by the past. She remembers the past. She remembers that there's someone who has helped the kingdom before. Someone, she says, who has light and understanding and wisdom, who's able to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems. And that person, of course, is Daniel. So she calls for Daniel to be brought in. And those themes that, that begin in verses 1 to 12 continue in verses 13 to 28. Verse 13 says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of, God, of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, 
and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. You know, if you've been with us through this series in Daniel, you will notice that, that there are similarities here uh, to prior chapters. Uh, we know that earlier in this book, there were multiple times that Daniel was brought in before the former king, Nebuchadnezzar, in order to deal with, with the interpretation of a dream. But there's differences in these uh, accounts uh, as well. If you look back to the interactions between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, there really develops a, a warmth and, and I think a respect between the two of them. And in Daniel 4, uh, Daniel interpreted uh, a dream that, that had a lot of bad news for Nebuchadnezzar. And you might remember Daniel said when he interpreted it, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. He cared about Nebuchadnezzar in that way. Now we're here in Daniel 5 and there is no such vibe <laughs> between Daniel and the new king. Daniel is brought in and, and commentators have noted you know, the terseness between Daniel and Belshazzar. And some see even in the original language just a real lack of respect that comes through as Belshazzar speaks about who Daniel is. He, he lists off kind of the things he's heard about Daniel, but, but he expresses no personal confidence that Daniel will be able to do the job even though he had done it so many times before. And Daniel responds in kind, right? He just says, look, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Daniel is not interested in what Belshazzar can do for him, but he says he will interpret the message. And even though there is a ton of bad news for the king in the message written on the wall, there is no hint of Daniel offering any sort of regret for the message. He just simply lays it out for him. And the message is very much about the king who came before him, the king Nebuchadnezzar, and how that king was changed. Daniel recounts that history. He reminds Belshazzar of what is true, that Nebuchadnezzar was given so much, so much greatness and glory and majesty. And this led to Nebuchadnezzar becoming arrogant. And he needed to be humbled, and God humbled him, as we heard about last week, driven out into the wilderness, dwelling with the wild donkeys, until he learned such an important lesson, until he was truly humbled and realized that he was not the God of the universe or even his own life. Now, we should stop here for a minute and consider the humility that Nebuchadnezzar learned because there's a couple different kinds of humility, and, and they're both really important. There's one type of humility uh, that is reflected by us as a church each week when we gather together and we do what we confess our sins together. There's that recognition uh, that we have sinned, and, and that humbles us and allows us to, to freshly receive the grace of God who, who loves sinners like us. And then to extend that grace to others. And that one of the things that does is it humbles us and it keeps us from kind of arrogantly thinking that like we're the good guys. 
and the rest of the world is, is the bad guys. And that's part of our humility. But there's something even more fundamental than this as we consider humility. And, and it's such an important lesson and freeing lesson for us to learn. Kelly Capek wrote a book a couple years ago. It's called uh, You're Only Human. And he pointed out that, that it's really incomplete and lacking for us to ground our understanding of humility in our sin. Because our humility runs far deeper than this. He said this, he said, Humility is a distinctly biblical virtue because it begins with the knowledge that there is a good creator, Lord, and we are the finite creatures that live in fellowship with him. So think about it. Now this is impossible, so don't like clip this out of the live stream and take it out of context. So. But imagine that you have lived a perfect life, completely without sin. Imagine that you always loved God and always loved your neighbor perfectly. Would that mean that you should no longer be humble? Absolutely not. Because you would still be completely dependent on the God who created you. See, no matter how good or how bad you've been, humility is the way. It's always the way. The way of humble dependence. And that dependence, as Nebuchadnezzar actually learned, even though he resisted, is really, really good news. And it's good news for us, too. Because embracing this humility and dependence means that we can stop trying to build our own little independent kingdoms. We can stop trying to be enough all the time by, by doing everything, by having a high-achieving career, an awesome social life, and a packed calendar of being all things to all people, a lifestyle that begins to delude us into thinking that we are the true kings of our own lives. And so we can stop that. We can stop measuring ourselves, as, as it is so tempting to do, by, by how busy we are, by how in demand we are, and instead embrace dependence and embrace the rhythm of work and rest. And this type of humility is good news for us, not just as individuals, but as a church, because, because we are limited. And that means we are not going to be able to do everything. And yes, of course, we want to strive for faithfulness in the things we do, but as a church, we are going to have weaknesses. We're not going to be able to be everything to everybody at all the time, not just because of our sin, but because of our God-given limits, because we are his creatures and because we are not God. And that is really good news, again, because it's very freeing and it allows us to be thankful, not just for, for what God's doing through us, not just for what God's doing through our church, but what God is doing in other churches that might accent and do things differently than we do. And so understanding this type of humility, it, it's so crucial to really flourishing as human beings and as those who follow Jesus and even as a church. Because on the other side of this humility is great freedom. And it's a humility that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. And it's a humility that, that all of us in our, in our little high-achieving pocket of a high-achieving nation desperately need to learn and embrace. But this kind of humble expression is the exact opposite of what we see in our story from King Belshazzar, who knows the history of those who have gone before him, as Daniel points out in verse 22. He points out, look, Belshazzar, you knew all of this. He knew what happened to his predecessor, but this history has not humbled him. And instead of being humbled by the power and goodness of the one true God and of his dependence on this God, he mocked the one true God by using the vessels from God's temple to help him worship his idols. Idols which do not see or hear or know. Idols that did not create him, 
that don't sustain him, that don't love him, that can do absolutely nothing for him as his kingdom collapses. And just like the idols do not see or hear or know, now Belshazzar does not see or hear or know. He doesn't understand the writing on the wall. He doesn't understand the lesson of his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. And he doesn't understand his dependent and now precarious position. And so Daniel lays it out very specifically for him. He says, look, the message on the wall is this, king, that it is God who numbered your kingdom's days. And that number has actually reached zero. That you, Belshazzar, have been measured, that you are lacking, and that your kingdom will now be divided. That's the message. And all that's left to do now is the completion of these events, which we see in our final few verses. Verse 29 says, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So you can say this for Belshazzar. He was at least true to his word, right? And he gave Daniel what he promised, even though Daniel said he was not interested in it. He clothed him with purple. He put a chain of gold around him, and he ascended him to the third ruler in the kingdom. But we should offer kind of two qualifications here. Number one, some actually see Belshazzar as doing this in kind of an ironic way to mock Daniel and his God. And that may or may not be true. It's hard to know for sure. But number two, and I think this is important no matter what, is that there wasn't really a whole lot to this promotion. <laughs> you're, not, you're not becoming like high up in some everlasting kingdom here, right? The empire of Babylon was, was collapsing. To return to our original analogy of, of being in the bunker at the end of World War II in Berlin, this is a little bit like receiving a, a promotion the day before the surrender. I mean, there, there's not a lot to it. So in this way, in a way, the whole thing, whether Belshazzar intended it this way or not, ends up being kind of hollow and really kind of a joke. Because that night, that very night, it, it was over. What, 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 while God had mercy on Nebuchadnezzar, humbling him and eventually seemingly bringing him to true faith, this does not happen with Belshazzar. Belshazzar dies, kingdom's taken away, given to Darius, who we'll hear more about next week. And that's it. That great empire of Babylon, which once seemed so powerful and so unstoppable, where hours before there was a boisterous feast and a king held court before so many, a thousand of his closest friends, it was over. And it's described so briefly here. One little line in Daniel 5, and then what? We're simply on to the next kingdom, the next empire. And that's one of the themes that we've returned to again and again in this book, that earthly kingdoms come and go, but there is another kingdom that endures. And this kingdom that endures can be traced in many ways throughout the Bible and throughout history itself. And one of the ways we can trace it is through what happens to Daniel at the end of chapter 5. When he's given this new status, when he's given a chain of gold and given this clothing of purple, I was reading uh, this week about the, the specific use of this word uh, purple in describing the material that Daniel uh, was clothed in. It's the same material that was, that was used in God's tabernacle, the place where God's presence dwelt in a special way among his people in the Old Testament. It's the same material that the high priest, the person who stood between God and his people making sacrifices, the same material he was clothed in. But this material was often used in other ways 
throughout the Bible, worn by kings who did not honor God, almost as a symbol of arrogance and rebellion against the true God. And even here in Daniel, yes, the, the purple is given to Daniel, but as we saw, it's, it's all kind of a sham. And it could even be that the king is mocking Daniel and his God. But, but again, even if it's meant sincerely, it seems almost meaningless because the kingdom of Babylon ends that night. And really, it's not up to Belshazzar to, to confer that kind of status on someone else because Belshazzar is just a human being who's temporarily in charge of a crumbling kingdom. He's here one moment and he's gone the next. But it's not the last time we see this kind of thing happen in the Bible because eventually Jesus comes along. And Jesus, who is and was and always will be fully God, takes on human flesh and becomes fully human, embracing the, the very finitude and limitations that Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and even we ourselves so often try to avoid. Embracing a life of, of humility and of service and of sacrifice, giving himself away in every way, even going all the way to a Roman cross where he would die for the sins of people like you and like me. And shortly before he went to that cross, Jesus was also clothed in purple by Roman soldiers. And they did it to mock him because he was known as the king of the Jews, and they thought that was hilarious. And just as Belshazzar did not understand that Daniel was a far more significant figure than he, who would outlast his own kingdom, in a much greater way, the Roman soldiers did not understand that Jesus was way more significant than they were, and that the kingdom of Jesus was way more significant than the kingdom of Rome. And we see this when Jesus not only dies on the cross for us, but is resurrected, appearing to many. And we see it even further when Jesus ascends into heaven. Now, we don't follow the historic church calendar real strictly here, but today is actually the Sunday that, that many churches celebrate Ascension Sunday, remembering and, and celebrating when Jesus ascended back to heaven after his resurrection. And when Jesus ascended, one of the many things that was happening there was that it was made clear to everyone who saw it that Jesus is indeed the true king. And this is such good news for us, right? To know that the fate of the world does not rest upon the earthly kings and the presidents and the nations and the empires. And to embrace uh, the humility of knowing that even our own destiny does not ultimately rest upon us. To know that Jesus came into this world for us, and even better, that one day, this true king of ours, he's going to come back again. And on that day, there will be a feast. Not the awful, arrogant, idolatrous feast that we read about in Daniel 5, but a feast where everything is the way that it should be. Where all those who follow Jesus can finally see and rejoice in him in a world that is made new, where we will still be completely dependent upon him, and where this dependence will feel like the good news that it really is. And as we wait for that day, we worship him, and we ask him to make us more and more the people that he's truly created us to be. What a privilege it is to be known and loved by him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning, and, and we are really grateful for the book of Daniel and the things that we see in the book, the things that we learn, and especially how it all points uh, to our Lord and our Savior. We are so grateful for Jesus. We are so amazed that he stepped into uh, this world and came in such a, a lowly way, Lord, 
And we're so grateful that he went all the way to the cross for us, Lord. And we pray that you would continue uh, to shape and fashion us uh, more and more into his likeness uh, as individuals and as a church and as Christians, Lord, as those who follow you. Even now, as we close uh, in worship, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see uh, that following you is so much better than trying to do everything on our own and building our own little kingdoms, Lord. Thank you that we get to be part of your kingdom by your grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.